0: Hello, uh, my name is Victoria Phillips, um, and um, we are here to talk about borrowing life. And um, welcome to the New Books Network. And um, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself um, and the book publication and how we can all find it?
1: Well, it's delighting, absolutely delight to meet you, Victoria, and to have this conversation because I'm eager to connect with readers about uh, what's considered to be one of the most important contributions to humankind in the 20th century, and that is the first successful kidney transplant. And how I came to this is I've been a novelist for 40 years or whatever, and I decided to switch fields, genres, and start writing nonfiction or narrative history. And I wanted to find a subject that would be simply a hunt for goodness I didn't want to write about people who were driven by money or ego or fame. And so I turned to the field of medicine uh, because basically people who enter medicine want to relieve suffering and leave something for the betterment of humankind. So anyway, um, I'm married to a surgeon who trained in neurosurgery at the Harvard Peter Brigham Hospital in the 60s. And he trained on- Joe Murray, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for the procedure of successfully performing the first kidney transplant in 1954, and also he uh, trained under Francis Moore, who was running the, he was the youngest chief of surgery ever appointed at Harvard. So he was the extraordinary human Being, (laughs) And I met these men when I was in my 20s, and I didn't know that I was walking among giants. So when I decided um, about four years ago to try my hand at writing nonfiction, I asked my husband, what would you suggest as a subject? And he said, well, you know, Joe, performing that first kidney transplant would make a damn good story. And immediately I thought, well, surely that has been told that's got to have been written about by our premier historians, David McCullough, um, someone of that ilk, because it's such an important story. And so I started researching it, and I found that it, yeah, they all wrote, all these men wrote their memoirs, but it's like going to medical rounds, surgical rounds. It's not written for the general public. And I thought, well, you know, that's a missing link there. We all need to know about how organ transplantation came about. So uh, in 1990, Joe Murray, after he was awarded the Nobel prize for uh, performing this surgery, he was a visiting professor at the university of Florida. And I met him then. And in our discussion, I remember he told me he had six children. And one of them was a professor of, I think, oceanography at Boston university. So just out of the blue, I called information for Boston University and asked for Rick Murray. And lo and behold, he answered the phone. And I said, has anyone written your father's story for the general public? And he said, no. And he said, I I, I kind of know who you are, but uh, if you want to give it a try, go ahead. <laughs> so he gave me an interview and then I interviewed a lot of his other children who knew Joe And so that's kind of how it started. And then um, I really didn't know how to go about this. And there's kind of a funny story here. I was asked to be a commentator for National Public Radio Morning Edition, and I did that for six years. And um, when I decided I was going to write Joe's story, I became horrified. I mean, what if I messed it up? I'd never written narrative history before. And I said, well, if I mess this up, there's going to be a reserved parking place in hell for me. So I better not mess it up. So I started thinking, I need to go somewhere and study how to write nonfiction. The be- one of the best places in America is Yale University. They're turning out creative nonfiction writers, uh, which are doing great work and bestsellers. So I called the professor in the char- in charge of that department, and he said, well, I won't let you in one of my classes. So I was insulted. I thought it was because of my age. And then he said, I've heard you on NPR and you will intimidate my students. (laughs) So then I was flattered. So anyway, I had to undertake teaching myself to do this myself. So I studied the greatest practitioners, I think, of nonfiction in America at the time. Lauren Hildenbrand, David McCullough, Doris Kearns. And I just more or less taught myself how to do this. So anyway, I was off and running (laughs) and I'm kind of talking nonstop.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think that's great. That has so many lessons for us as readers and writers in it. You know, first that, um, you know, you just pick up the phone.
1: (laughs) and that's been a theme throughout this whole project which I will tell more about as we go along (laughs) so anyway I got started and um, the first hurdle I had to overcome was I was getting ready to digest this complicated science because um, it's very complicated Um, the transplant challenge was how to overcome rejection you know all the foreign tissue in the body is rejected so uh, anyway I had to uh, digest an awful lot of scientific biological information and I made a C in college zoology (laughs) so what was I going to do recently I heard a, a lecture a talk by David McCullough in which he told about writing the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. And he said, I wanted to write, uh, similar to me, he wanted to write about men or people coming together simply for the sake of doing something good. And he said, when he learned about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, he said, I hated math. I didn't know anything about engineering. It was intimidating. But the passion to tell the story was so great, I overcame it. So kind of that's my excuse for this, is that I just dug in and I kept telling myself I can do this. And then finally, one of the most important um, bizarre facts in writing this story was I discovered that after World War II, there was so much interest in how to treat survivors of a nuclear war blast that the monies for the research in creating the first kidney transplant came from the atomic commission. Um, Yeah. Because we all thought we were going to be dealing with nuclear war and we might sense, but anyway, the point was the survivors of Hiroshima didn't have any immune systems. And so they wanted to study this in terms of that was the first thing that had to be done to create a kidney transplant was to not have it rejected. And to have it not have it rejected, you have to destroy the immune system, so that it won't recognize a foreign tissue when it enters the body. So anyway, so we can go back a little bit to um, how I learned and got started. Uh, one of the biggest decisions I had to make was where was I going to start this story. One of the most chilling facts I discovered was that after the attack at Pearl Harbor, harbor. Every medical student in America was drafted. Now, that to me was chilling. They were just taken out of every medical school, taught how to march and drill, and sent to some hospital with very little training. In fact, Joe Murray, at the age of 25, had had only nine months of surgical training. And he was sent to the biggest military hospital in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, um, as a young surgeon. And he was there when Charles Woods, a young pilot who was flying 28,000 gallons of aviation fuel up over the Himalayan mountains to an air base in China to defend against the Japanese. His plane crashed and he was uh, burned over 70% of his body. In fact, he was so close to death, it took six weeks to get him back to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, to this hospital where Joe was. So when Charles Woods arrived, I mean, this is a dramatic story. And when I found this opening, I said, this is where we need to begin. So when he arrived at the hospital where Joe was on the team to take care of him, he was only like minutes from dying. So all of the Doctors trying to take care of him decided that they were going to do a Hail Mary attempt. And so the the reason people die of burns is infection. And you have to cover the wounds to try to get through that window of where death is creeping up every second. So they decided to, that morning in the hospital, a janitor had died, a young man. And so they decided they would take some of his skin and transplant it to Charles Woods' burn wounds in just a Hail Mary attempt. Well, it turned out that those skin grafts lasted longer than usual, which is 10 days to two weeks. And when Joe Murray saw that, he said, I don't know why that's happening. It's a scientific phenomenon. But why can't we share organs in the same way that we're trying to save Charles Woods' life was skin. And that was Joe Murray's first curiosity and asked that question. It had never been asked before. However, the background to this is even more chilling. In the London bombings, when people were dug out of the rubble and were still alive and could be kept alive for a while with blood transfusions, which were just discovered, they found that they called it crush syndromes. Their kidneys were not working from having been crushed in the bombings so they found out after 10 or 14 days the kidneys would spontaneously heal and begin working so in Nazi Holland a young physician developed the first invented the first dialysis machine out of uh, sausage, sausage casings and uh, tomato cans. <laughs> in other words, they came up with what was called a bridge to to take care of someone dying from kidney failure until their kidneys could heal. So anyway, that was part of the uh, plan to work toward the transplantation of organs. So in Joe was released from the Army after the war, and he went back to Harvard to finish his surgical training. Everybody said to him, you need to drop this idea of transplanting organs. It's crazy. It's going to ruin your career. But he couldn't let it go. Because I think to me, one of the most uh, amazing facts is that the story of the dialysis machine made from sausage casing and tomato cans was shared across borders of countries at war. You know, this is a higher level of attempts for survival and what I call just general goodness. These people were working to uh, relieve suffering and to offer something to mankind. I mean, just think today of how kidney transplants are an everyday occurrence. And that's why I think this book is so important For people to read and to understand. In fact, I'll throw in here right here that after it was published, like last year, the American Science Association, someone read it there. And even though I wrote it as an adult book, they said high schoolers need to read this because it will be inspiring. Plus, it's STEM education, it's science, pure science education. So um, they chose it in the young adult category as a Finalist for a book award, one of four. And so that has placed it in a lot of high schools and community colleges. So I'm hoping because now that I chatter on about these men and this team that came together, it's so inspiring. It teaches young people that when you lasso your hopes around something that's not besides money or fame or ego, you know, you have a life's work that can't be duplicated. It's so fulfilling. Uh, Joe Murray always said that work is a daily prayer and he worked all the time. He worked day and night toward this crazy goal of sharing organs and saving lives. So anyway, um, now I want to talk a little bit about (laughs) the other members of the team.
0: Um, can I just, as you're doing that, um, if if we could just interrupt for one minute, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about the structure of the book, because I thought that was so interesting. Um, you know, you started with your anecdote, and then you have the biographies and it all comes together. Can you talk a little bit about about the structure of the book? And it, it is an immensely readable book. Um, so, you know, how did you uh, what, what made you decide on the structure? And um, what gives it its tone?
1: Yeah, well, being a a novelist for so many years, I'm naturally interested in creating characters and personalities and understanding the psychology of it all. So I decided that um, I call it narrative drive. I had to have something drive each chapter to the next chapter. And so I thought that the personalities of these men and their generosity toward each other. Sure, there were fights like there are in any family, but their commitment to the single goal was what was important. So I decided to tell it through four different viewpoints and drive it from one chapter to the other. And one of the most important parts that I learned that people in America don't really understand because it involves Peter Medawar, who was a British citizen, a zoologist at Oxford. And so we don't really uh, appreciate who he was or know much about him. And when I learned about it, I mean, I was just riveted. Oh, my gosh. Peter was a young graduate student at the University of Oxford. And he was so brilliant. Everyone knew how brilliant he was. He never cracked a book. He just knew everything. And he understood he, tissue culture. He did bench science, which means that he actually did all the work himself. Um, and he was the only one that could had a mind big enough to put together clinical aspects with pure science, basic science. And so um, they compared him to Galileo in terms of what he learned and taught people about the system of biology he, he can't be duplicated in history he was so extraordinary he was six foot five um drop dead handsome fell in love with gene a former st- a student in one of his classes and he was just extraordinary he actually had uh, every talent you could imagine he became um in charge of the british scientific system uh, System there, what we call NIH here, and he, because he even had uh, administrative talents. So anyway, um, his story begins very similarly to Joe Murray's, the surgeon, because he was in uh, Oxford uh, after graduate stu- school when a uh, Spitfire during the London bombing flew over his neighborhood and crashed. And he ran with his neighbors to try to save the pilot. The pilot was taken to the hospital. And for days after that, Peter would go and see the uh, patient. And the doctor started begging him to please put his extraordinary brilliance toward solving the problem for rejection of skin grafts. So uh, Peter has written quite a bit about the fact that for any scientist, Their minds need to experience a shock to focus their talents and their skills. So this is a really, to me, an amazing story and anecdote in here. So uh, Peter turned to what they asked him for because he saw the suffering of that pilot. Plus, he was in the midst of World War II and the creeping of uh, nazism and he was jewish (laughs) he said they're coming to get me so i better work fast so anyway his is just a wonderful story and uh, basically what happened was he was very extroverted he was just so charming he was at a veterinary uh, uh, conference of veterinarians in britain and he sat down to have lunch with this veterinarian who said you know peter I know you know a lot about biology and I know a little bit about who you are and your capabilities. We've got a problem. We want to find out fraternal, uh, how to tell fraternal from identical twin calves. And can you tell us how to do that? And uh, Peter offhandedly said, ah, you just give them a skin graft. And when the skin graft is rejected, you'll know they're fraternal. Because we know, in fact, they used in nurseries, if they had a question of the identity of a baby, they would do skin grafts between the parents and the kids or the fraternal twins or whatever. And skin grafts were a means of uh, discovering a relativity, you know, or identity, who's related and who's not. So, anyway, the veterinarian was only 40 miles from London. And he called Peter and said, well, we don't really know how to do that. Will you come up here and do it? So um, Peter went up there with his assistant and performed some and then went back and was astonished to find that all of the twin calves didn't reject the skin grafts. No one did. So it wasn't really telling them which were fraternal and which were identical. So when Peter delved into that, he found out that it was pre-birth fluid exchanges, which created a chimera, uh, an entity, a living being that had a little bit of each in it. And so Peter dis- discovered that it was the, when biological entities were in the womb and exchanged fluids, they became rejection proof and they could exchange organs, blood, anything else. So he, for years, he put on display the workings of the immune system. And in 1960, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for um, creating the field of immunogenetics. And what is even more fascinating is his work was published in the Nature Journal in the same time, the same issue, With Watson and Crick's discovery of DNA. So this was an enormous moment in science. And when Peter Medawar came to the United States to work with Joe Murray on organ transplantation, and along with uh, Francis Moore, the chief of surgery, who set up the most premier uh, operating um, system to treat dying patients of kidney disease, which made Joe Murray's research possible. And when Peter Medawar came to Harvard, there were so many people waiting to hear his lectures. They were standing in the halls and around the block. I mean, he was a rock star. This was like 1948. And uh, it, it was just so exciting. And in that result, Peter now is known as the father of immunology. So for anyone wanting to really know the background of how the body works, the simple biology, which we've all gone gone through with COVID, that's another reason this book I think is so important for students and the lay public to read is because it gives us that basic understanding of how our bodies work and the use of vaccines, how they're developed, and why we need to embrace this basic knowledge because ignorance is really our evil <laughs> uh, villain out there <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> that's so true yeah no so um you know what I really enjoyed about the book was the way you you gave each man his own biography and then interla but also inter and then interlaced them one with the other it was absolutely right. phenomenal well it was um, an amazing
1: team yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and I hadn't heard of any of them. I thought I was fairly well educated. Um, so tell us about the cover, uh, yeah, which,
1: is, another which is a painting part. by American artist Joel Babb. Right. Well, one of the amazing things about this story that I've been chattering on now like a magpie for some time is that one of the first things you need to understand about how important this science and this book is that tells the story of the science is that in the Harvard Countway Library, there's a very famous painting, which almost everybody knows about. And it was the first time surgery was performed with ether. And ether came from the development of dentistry. I don't know if many people know that, but this painting is very famous mainly to almost everyone, because everyone knows how important that is to not suffer the pain of surgery. And it takes up one whole wall. It's huge because it's that important. So Dr. Moore at Harvard in the 90s decided that Joe's successful kidney transplant, which he performed on December 23rd, 1954, should have a painting equal to the first use of ether in surgery, because it's that profound in what it's done around the world in saving suffering and lives. So he, Dr. Moore, found this artist, Joel Babb, who painted it. And when my editor asked me, do you have a suggestion for the cover? I said, yes, that painting. So I researched it. I Googled the painting and found out Joel Babb was the painter. So I called him up. I called up his gallery where he shows his paintings in Maine. And uh, we laugh about this. Joel and I have become good friends, but I assumed he was dead. (laughs) So when he answered the phone, I said, you're still alive. And he said, so far. So I asked him if we could use his painting on the cover. And we've since become really, really good friends. But the painting is amazing. I'll talk a little bit now about the actual surgery. Uh, In 1954, on December the 23rd, and this is important, too, because this month is the 68th anniversary of that surgery. So that's kind of a peg to think about toward the end of this month, what has happened that uh, impacts so many of our relatives' lives and around the globe. You know, like I think 100,000 people are waiting for a kidney transplant today. And 20 people die every day waiting. So even though this seems ordinary today, it's really very special. So Joe Murray had done like seven years of research, mainly using dogs who were very humanely treated. And the reason they use them is that their arteries and veins are similar to the size of a human being's. And one of the first things they had to Developed was how to suture arteries and veins together. And so they actually used a method from women in Europe who made lace and knew how to sew lace. And so that um, technique came into surgery. And when Joe learned that, he knew uh, from working on dogs that he could perform in a human. So by then, Metawar had all taught them that if you're going to transplant an organ and they wanted to do a kidney, because after all, there is a spare, <laughs> it comes in twos and it's small. It's, uh, this, it's not very big. You can hold it in your hand. So that seemed a perfect first organ to develop this kind of surgery on. So Joe knew that he would need to have an identical twin. To avoid the barrier of rejection, so into the hospital comes Richard Herrick, who was dying of kidney disease, and he had an identical twin, Ronald Herrick. So Joe said, "Oh, this is it." So within like forty-eight hours, they were ready to go. Plus, he uh, Richard was dying uh, on dialysis. You can't keep the chemical balance very long on dialysis. So they really needed to rush it through. So the drama of this was enormous because Joe said he was, he he was nervous. He's a perfectionist. He wanted to make sure that they were totally compatible, uh, genetically compatible. So he did skin grafts on their arms and the skin that he took from one and put on the other was not rejected. And in addition to that, he said, I'm going to have him fingerprinted at the police station in Boston. So he sent him down there, <laughs> not knowing that reporters hung out down there for stories. So that's how they got wind of the fact that the next day or very soon, they were going to perform this groundbreaking surgery. So the newspapers exploded. And overnight, Joe became very famous and fraught with danger, like an astronaut going up in the first rocket. (laughs) So anyway, it became um, very dramatic at that point. So Joe said um, he was ready, but he got a little bit nervous, and he was um, ambidextrous. He was born left-handed, and because his teachers didn't want to change him, he, became, he learned to be ambidextrous in the hospital room. And that was one of his great talents because he could, uh, didn't have to change position on the operating room, go to the other side. He could just use his other hand and reach over and do what he needed to do. So the night before the surgery was to be performed, Franny and Joe said, we need to practice. Um, so they had alerted the hospitals that if, um, uh, death occurred and the autopsy were going to be performed please call them so joe was at a christmas party he was mixing drinks when the call came and said we have an autopsy about to be done do you want to come down here and they rushed down there with their surgical instruments (laughs) for franny to assist joe and practice one more time on creating a kidney transplant so the next day they went and in this painting you can see that Francis Moore is carrying in a basin Ronald Herrick's kidney to Joe to put in Richard Herrick so you can actually see that in the five and a half hour surgery and as soon as they hook the kidney up uh urine flowed and everybody celebrated like they just popped champagne. I mean, it's a wonderful story. It's just so much fun. And especially when you think about what a contribution this is to everybody. You know, we don't realize today how many people are suffering suffering from kidney disease and how many lives we save. I mean, um, and I can talk about next about um, what's happened to me after publishing the book. I had one of uh, Richard Herrick's grandsons or relatives call me and say, I didn't know anything about my father. He lived eight years after the surgery. And he said, your book has given him to me. So there, there, there are so many wonderful things that happen. And I've had a lot of kidney recipients get in touch with me and tell me about their experience of receiving a donor kidney. And, you know, today they have a chain where if you don't have a relative that's a match for your kidney, they will find a stranger. And so your relative will give your their kidney to someone they don't know but is a match, and it's a chain ongoing. And it's just a wonderful, very positive story about what has come from this scientific experience. It's been a great honor for me to have been given the job to write the book.
0: It's it's just incredible um, the story and and so exciting you know um, uh, you know it's better than Grey's Anatomy you know um, <laughs> um so um, you know how how did you do your research um, you know what what were the sources that you used what did you find to be you know most
1: interesting in your well, work um, I'm not really trained as a historian um self-trained I dug this out for myself Um, and I don't pretend to be otherwise I know that primary sources are very important to a historian but the children uh, Joe's children helped me a lot and then the fact that each of these men had written a memoir and even though uh, those memoirs were like I say presenting at grand rounds um, and my husband helped me Uh, decipher some of the scientific writing. But one of the most exciting things I did on my own, I'm gaining confidence as I get older, or maybe I should say, my foolishness is paying off. So anyway, Francis Moore had written a book called Give and Take. And he wrote it because in the 60s, at a Harvard alumni meeting, everybody wanted to learn about organ transplantation because it was like the moonshot it was the big thing so they asked Franny to give lectures and he published those lectures as his little book called give and take which is very difficult to understand but it's not under it's not difficult to understand why because Franny knew so much his mind was so large he couldn't tell what would be interesting and decipherable to the lay public he couldn't not use all of his details so it's very detail driven however in there is this anecdote which caught me and wouldn't let me go in 1946 before the dialysis machines blueprints came from holland from the man who invented it to peter brigham it was a year before that but everyone understood that the use of a bridge to work like a kidney could save a life. So in the Peter Bent Brigham hospital, there were three residents on call that night. And they had a young woman who was only 29 years old, who'd had a botched abortion and her womb was infected. And she was like only minutes from death. She was in a coma. So these three Crazy, brazen, brave residents said, "Let's save her life, damn it!" And they had a man die on the floor above. They ran up there and got his kidney. They didn't even have enough time to take this young woman to the operating room, so they rolled her into something almost like a closet (laughs) near on the ward near the on the aisle uh, (laughs) there in the ward, and they put this cadaver kidney in her elbow and hooked up the arteries and instantly urine flowed from that kidney. It saved her life. This was the first, it became an urban legend. And I, this is the point that I had to make is that I had to figure out why that was never written down. It's because they broke every rule in the hospital. (laughs) They were mavericks, but they saved that woman's life. She lived, she walked out of the hospital and lived for several months longer. But the point was they showed that a borrowed kidney, even from someone that was not related, could save a life in the chance that her own kidneys would begin working, which they did in time. They didn't keep her alive very long because of rejection. So the next hurdle was rejection. So then for me as a writer, I agonized, like, where am I going to end the story? So I finally gave myself permission one day, probably when I was trotting my horse around the field is when I think my best. And I said to myself, Shelly, you don't have to know all things kidney. In the story at which the first drugs to prevent rejection were used and worked because up until then they were using radiation like they understood from the atomic bomb. If you use radiation, you will wipe out a person's immune system and they can't reject the borrowed organ. So up until then, they were having patients who were dying from kidney disease live in the operating room for like months while they wiped out their immune systems with radiation. And they were all dying to the point that the research almost stopped. Uh, It was horrifying. And Joe, at that point, more or less had a nervous breakdown because he would get so close to these patients. And then he couldn't save their lives, even after they were living in in the operating room for a month or more. So finally, these drugs in research that were being developed to treat cancer, they found were wiping out the immune system. So they were able to start using these drugs. And when they finally had a patient use a kidney from someone who was not related and yet controlled his immune system to keep that kidney, that was when we jumped into this whole new world of organ transplantation from a cadaver. That was the Holy grail that, Joe was, and Franny and Medawar were always aiming toward. How do we use a cadaver kidney to save a life? Because we can't always have an identical twin. But all that research together is just, to me, so inspiring and so fascinating to go into this world, which was really like the moonshot, and today seems. Like flying across the nation in in a jet plane, <laughs> it's so ordinary. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's it. You know, it's like we just go to the we go to Mars every day. It's yeah. um, it's incredible. Um, my um, my daughter's um, spouse's father just had a um, a heart transplant. Oh wow! You know, and yeah. it's 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 incredible. Um, yes, you know the miracle of it, right? Um, you know, it's and and this immune system. Issue, of course, is you know has been has been very difficult because you with you can imagine with COVID, <laughs> right, right, you know, right the, and the it's uh, just um so it's fat science is so fascinating, um, so um, so um, so you ended with these drugs were these drugs uh, the, with with the cancer drugs um right. how did How did they figure out that this was going to work? And how did the scientists talk to one another to kind of come to this crescendo moment?
1: Well, that's the beauty of this story is that scientists and physicians and surgeons all work together. And back then there was the scientist surgeon. I mean, Joe Murray didn't have a PhD um, like today. So many physicians do have, Um, but he was a scientist. And the most remarkable thing about him, which I've, I wish that I could get every person in high school to read this book, because when you understand who these people were, how pure and special and how hard they worked. Uh, After Joe performed that world-breaking surgery on December the 23rd, on Christmas day, he got a call from the Newton Wellesley hospital that a child had busted his face on his new bicycle Christmas day would Joe come in and sew him up? He did. <laughs> that tells you what kind of man that was. And also, after he did that surgery for in the uh, the Kennedy the kidney transplant, he always had a special affinity for people and children who had craniofish facial birth defects. So he flew over a surgeon from Paris to teach him how to do craniofacial surgery. And he spent the last years of his life operating on these people who had horrible facial deformities. And part of that came from his having created a face for the burn pilot, Charles Woods. And uh, he found that the most rewarding thing he had done, he gave Charles a face in which he could walk out into the world. Now that story itself, Um, I'll back up a little bit here. My editor said, Shelley, you have written the longest epilogue in history, literary history. And I said, well, I think I need to stop the story with the first really successful transplant using drugs to depress the immune system, that first reaching the Holy Grail. But all of these lives were long. You know, uh, Joe Murray lived to 93 uh, Francis Moore lived to 88 and Peter Medawar, the riveting story, he was giving a speech in Oxford and had a stroke in the middle of the speech and was disabled for the rest of his life. He was in a wheelchair, but he continued to give his lectures and his wife, Jean helped him, but he traveled the world sharing his expertise and, um, It's just an amazing story in terms of their um, fortitude and their um, dedication to wanting to do something good. In fact, I have here, I found this uh, quote by in the speech that Peter was giving when he had in the middle of a stroke. He was able to one of the last things he said is the great thing is to be in it likening life to a race with no finishing post to be a contestant in the attempt to make the world a better place is to, and to forsake that course is to die. So he always continued to use his science toward the betterment of humankind, but I just find it such an inspiring story. And it changed my life to write this story because aches and pains don't matter. You just keep going it's a race with no finishing post, right? I love that about Peter Metawar. I, I love that. That That's a great, great quote. Um, I should keep
0: that on my desk. Um, what a <laughs> wonderful quote. Um, and, um, and the pilot, Charles, uh, he went on to become a business person,
1: correct? Yeah, isn't that a fun? That's part of the epilogue, too. One reason I had such a long epilogue is that the finishing post for these people Was extraordinary. When Charles went home to Alabama, and he was horribly deformed, and Joe was able to give him enough fingers to where he could drive. Um, But anyway, his high school buddy said, "Well, you know, you'll get a big pension. You can sit on the porch and drink beer with us and raise turkeys, and we'll take you hunting, and we'll have a good time." And Joe said, "Well, I didn't work this hard to stay alive to sit on the porch." And this was at the beginning of TV. So he bought TV stations, and he um, built houses in the construction boom after World War II. He had nine children. As all of these of the great uh, generation came home, they wanted to repopulate. And so they all had big families. Uh, Franny had five children. Joe had six. Charles Woods had nine. So, um, Peter Menawar had four, uh, so they had big families, uh, but I just found that so fascinating. And so then, because Charles Woods had grown up in an orphanage during the depression, he was always very sympathetic and empathetic to poor people because he lost his mother. His mother was a single mother and couldn't keep him during the depression, So he ran as a Democrat against George Wallace for governor in Alabama. (laughs) Talk about brave. And then he ran for president in the early 1990s because he wanted to create um, programs for poor people. And you can see today on YouTube some of his interviews when he was running for um, president. And I think this is interesting for young people to look at because the comments in our digital world on those YouTube interviews, they talk about, oh, God, look at this monster. But, you know, they don't understand what the great generation was all about. And to understand uh, Charles Woods' dedication to doing something good with his life that he fought so hard to save. I mean, it's just incredible. Those pilots, it was so chilling, those that were flying the hump over the Himalayan mountains. And it was a 24-hour assignment. As soon as they got back, someone else would go again with this aviation fuel. But the pilots didn't expect to live but 30 days. I can't get my mind around that. You know, we need to revisit these... um, dedicated human beings and what it was like at the beginning of World War II and what they were fighting for. You know, that uh, uh, one thing, one reason I'm writing narrative history is because so many of these extraordinary people and events have slipped b- below our everyday history. We don't know it. So I'm m- more or less dedicated for the <laughs> my last chapter to uh, writing this for the lay public because I admit I'm not a historian, but I can distill secondary sources and I have enough understanding of how to tell a story to hopefully get it out to enough people that they're inspired. And that's
0: such an important skill. um, So one of the things that always struck me during this and, and strikes me about the history of warfare is these brutal battles, as you said, you know, people... 100% 100% of the pilots I think died within 30 days or some yeah, ridiculous yeah. number. Yeah. Um the turnover um, but then out of war and the response to war comes these amazing breakthroughs. Right. So how do you uh, and and you know that that the that we learned about the immune system from the dropping of the atomic bomb, right? right. I mean it's <laughs> so how do you reconcile that or do you <laughs>
1: Well, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you've studied him, but the power of myth. And he always says, you know, you have to join the dance. War is always going to be here. Evil is always going to be here. Uh, we have to. And I do believe I'm writing now about uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams' friendship, which fell apart and got put back together. But uh, Thomas Jefferson always said he believed in the possibility of the evolution of the human being. And I share that belief. We have to keep pushing. You know, in my lifetime of nearly 80 years, I've seen tremendous change take place. And it's slow. That's what's the hardest thing for me to accept is how slow it is. But for people, uh, presidents and world leaders who have vision, uh, they're rare. And when you come upon these people who have vision of where we can go They're not just caretakers of the moment, but they actually see the vision. And uh, that was Joe and uh, Franny Moore saw. And he piloted the first liver transplant, Franny himself. And he uh, piloted the first understanding of what the body undergoes during surgery. In fact, uh, he wrote the textbook that's still used today and every patient that walks through a hospital door is in fact uh, affected by the research of Francis Moore. And he himself, and you learn in this book, was extraordinary because his family (laughs) made a great invention for the railroads, and he was wealthy, so wealthy that he never had to work a day in his life. And they lived in a great mansion with servants. I mean, Franny didn't have to do anything in life, but he was brilliant and he chose to be a surgeon because he wanted to impact suffering. And his um, claim to fame to become the youngest chief of surgery at Harvard was during the Coconut Grove fire in Boston. He was a resident in surgery and it was 1942 during Thanksgiving when all the young soldiers were home and wanted to go party, and the nightclub caught on fire, and 300 people died instantly. It was one of the great civilian tragedies in America. So Franny, Francis Moore, cut his teeth as a young surgeon on trying to save those patients and became a specialist in burn care. So um, to me, I just wish That every high school student could read this book to be inspired by how these men gave their lives and their time. In fact, Franny spent so much time at the hospital that his neighbor mowed his name in his grass because he would never mow the grass. And the neighbors all got together and said, we're going to mow it for him, but we're going to leave his name. (laughs)
0: That's great. So this is uh, it's so inspiring. Um, what's next? What what, what if um, you know if you could name the the the, the next? What's next for you? And um, you know what 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 else needs to be written?
1: Well, I'm really bitten by this writing of narrative history because I've um, chattered on here so much. You probably know why. It's obnoxious about how much I can talk about this. I see eyes roll in their sockets. I bore people to death. But anyway, I have a new book coming out in October of next year. I'm very excited about. And it grew out of my writing borrowing life because part of my research was I learned how many characters in history and also in novels. Dickens had a lot of characters who suffered from kidney disease. So in my reading of that research, I came upon the fact that Theodore Roosevelt's first wife died of Wright's disease. Right after childbirth, when his daughter Alice was born and only two years old. And his grief was so great that he couldn't say the word Alice or even look into the eye of his daughter. And so I thought, well, I don't know if you know about Alice Roosevelt, but she was the first Princess Diana. She had so many hijinks. She was uh, written about more than her father. And she took him on in a competition of who could uh, be the most outrageous in the American culture. And Theodore Roosevelt was the most charismatic president prior to JFK. So I was bitten with that story. So I have a book coming out next October titled The White House Wild Child. (laughs) Because Alice set about being outrageous and overshadowing her father so that he would notice her and love her unconditionally. So she carried in her purse a copy of the Constitution, a dagger, and a green snake. (laughs) And when her father told her she could not smoke in the White House, she climbed on the roof and smoked on the roof. And then she called all the reporters to come see. (laughs) So it's a fun book, but it also has in my opinion, great depth into the development of a father-daughter relationship and the uh, psychology of grief on a child's development or on anyone to deal with grief. So I'm very excited about that coming out next October. That's
0: great. I can't wait to read it. And what a great title, The White House Wild Child.
1: Yeah, she was definitely wild child. There's a little bit of me in that. (laughs)
0: That's absolutely phenomenal. Well, um, congratulations, Shelly, on Borrowing Life. Um, and um, uh, just one last question. Um, what have I missed? What more do you want to say that we haven't discussed?
1: Well, I just want to thank you for listening because I'm a jabbermouth when it comes to my work. Um, I'm obsessed. I learned at a very early age that I think a book can change a life. And I'm very dedicated to that. Um, for a while, for what seven years, my husband, who's a pediatric neurosurgeon, and I ran a publishing company established at Wild Onion Press because there were no books about children with disabilities. So I had uh, an amazing experience one day when a manuscript arrived at my house by Overnight FedEx And it was written by a young girl in Indiana who had been born without fingers on a hand. And her surgeon had made fingers out of her toes. And she had been bullied on the preschool uh, playground. A little boy came over and said, you have funny little fingers. You must be stupid. So she was, I think, five years old. And when her mother came and picked her up, She got in the car and she said, Mom, I'm going to dictate my memoir to you because I'm going to teach that little boy something he's never known. I'm going to set him straight. So in this package that arrived at my house was this picture book she had written about um, being born with no fingers. And um, by the time I turned the last page, I was not the same person. She had invited me into her world. And her world changed me. So after all these years of like nearly 50 years writing novels, I suddenly had a simple explanation of aesthetics. What is good in a book? If after you've read a book, you are not the same person, that writer has succeeded. So basically, uh, that's what I'm dedicated to. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Shelley, that is so inspiring, and I hope everybody um, runs out to buy your book um, to be so inspired. Um, because I, I certainly was, um, and um, you know, in that sense, it, it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's a an academic book and you know, and or or a, a public book. You know, I think what you've done is is truly extraordinary to wade through all of the all of the muck that we as readers would not wade through to bring a story um, to the to the public that should be there anyway um, and in such compelling terms. So um, thank you so much. You you learned well from the masters. Now it's our turn to study you.
1: So thank you. Well, Thank you for having me. And thank you for not rolling your eyes, Virginia. Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. bye